If you have your Bibles, you guys can open up to John 18 as we continue our sermon series on It's Time. We're getting near the end here. Uh, We've got a couple more weeks uh, looking at Christ's last week of ministry. Now, I'm sure a lot of you probably remember the TV show because it's still on, Cops. Uh, Cops got actually got started in 1989, and um, it really was one of the first kind of reality TV shows uh, long before reality TV show kind of hit the 90s. Uh, but the the two producers of Cops were actually going to do a, a television series, and they went on patrol with some some officers to do some research, and they ended up going on a drug bust. And in the process of going on this drug bust and seeing it, the producer said, wait a minute, what if we just actually do a show and film real cops doing their job? And it got kicked around for a while and they went to different networks and and nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted to touch the show. But in 1989, the Screenwriters Guild went on strike. And so TV shows were, or networks were starting to get a little desperate. And Fox came to these guys and said, well, you're not part of the Unions Guild, so we can actually hire you and and we'll just take on your show and see how it goes. Uh, And, you know, it, it was really, for a lot of people, the first time taking a look at police work seeing the actual kind of ins and outs on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and, and not every show people were arrested. Not every show was a dramatic scene. Uh, but there were certainly times where criminals fled and you know, you're watching them hop the fences and run through. And uh, there were times where there were tussles between the police officers and the criminals. And sometimes, uh, as I was doing a little of the research, uh, many of the people in the show, the cameramen, People, people doing the lights actually got involved themselves, having to help police officers wrestle criminals. And uh, there was one episode where they said the police officers actually couldn't keep up with the criminal, but the camera guy did. So here he was running with a camera, literally behind the criminal, and he realized none of the other officers were behind him anymore. Um, and, and you know, and, and sometimes when you watch some of these episodes. It, it was the weird and wacky of, 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 um, of people, right? You saw some people and you just thought to yourself, there is no way that that person can be a real person. And I think even the police officers themselves are probably thinking the same thing, right? Well, as we look at um, the passage today, we are going to get a cops-styled episode. We are going to see the arrest of Jesus through the lens of three different groups of people, through those arresting Jesus through Peter, and then through the lens of Jesus himself. And so we're, we're shifting away from the teaching. Uh, Jesus has spent time, again, preparing his disciples for about what was to happen, uh, communicating that, you know, it's going to be okay, I will be back, take peace, this, you know, they're going to hate you, don't worry, you'll be okay. And then after he finishes his teachings, we've just spent the last three weeks looking at his prayer, and he prays for the glory of his Father, he prays for the protection of his disciples, and as we talked last week, he prays for the evangelical work of his ministry. And he's praying not just for those disciples there, but he's praying for all future generations. And Christ was praying 
for you and I in this process. And so now we turn to the, the narration part of the crucifixion. So the rest of John now is kind of following it more in a historical storytelling format of what we're looking at. Now, we're going we're gonna to read this um, in three parts. So the first part is going to kind of be about his arrest and trial through the lens of those. Uh, and then we'll read about Peter's uh, actions and what happens with him. And then we'll go back and take a look at Jesus's response in all of this. And again, what we're trying to understand is through all of this, what is the commitment of God? What is the commitment of Christ to his people and to this world? So I'm going to start reading here in verse 1. And then again, I'm going to skip over there to, to verse 19. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, was betrayed, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, said Jesus. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Judas says, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. And if you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malichus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? And then the detachment of soldiers with the commander and Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Ananias, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. And Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I have said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If it is something said wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Ananias sent him still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, so first off, again, looking at this perspective of those that have come to arrest Jesus. We, we have a detachment of soldiers here. So we have both Roman soldiers as well as some Jewish temple guards coming to arrest Jesus. Uh, and, and they come with their lanterns, and they've got their swords, and they've got their spears, and they are prepared to scour wherever Jesus may be hiding, right? So if he's hiding in a cave or in some little nook or hiding up in a tree, 
these men were going to find and arrest Jesus. It, it, I kind of like get this feeling as if it's almost the, the peasants marching up the mountain to Frankenstein's castle, right? We're going to get him. And there they are with their pitchforks and their torches. We're going to get this man. And, and so they come up and they, they find Jesus. And it's interesting that the high priest at this time, the high priest was the highest kind of religious figure in the Jewish faith. Uh, they don't take Jesus after they arrest him. They don't directly take him there. They take him to Ananias, who is his father-in-law. Now, Ananias used to be the high priest. And in Jewish culture, that was a lifelong position. However, the Romans didn't like that idea. They didn't like the concept that one man could have all of that power for so long. So they periodically would actually switch the, the chief or the high priest. So Ananias was it. And now they and, and so the Romans recognize that. But the Jews take him there because, again, what they're saying is we still kind of recognize Ananias as kind of the like unofficial official high priest at this time. Uh, and so he gets taken over there and then they, they grab Jesus. They start to question him. And then at one point he gets struck. And Jesus is kind of like, what are you doing? If I've said something wrong, why don't you tell me? And where are all the witnesses in all of this? Okay? So what we need to understand here is that what Jesus is going through is, is a sham of a trial. Okay? This, this is a completely fraudulent arrest and trial of Jesus. Okay? So, so first off, they come at night. Right? Jesus is like, I've always been wherever I've needed to be. You could have come and got me at any time. But what are you doing? You're coming at the darkness of night. You're coming in secret because you don't want anyone else to know what's going on. Okay? And then, again, they take him to Ananias. They should have taken him directly to Caiaphas. That's who he should have gone to because that was the legal person in charge of the actual trial. So the fact that they go to Ananias first, again, is a violation of the procedure of how this should have went. And then after they take him there, they physically strike Jesus as a prisoner. So again, he's done nothing wrong, and now they've struck him as a prisoner. Again, another violation. And then he says, where's the witnesses? Doesn't your own word testify to this? And we see this back in Deuteronomy. It says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus is like, guys, where's your witnesses? You said I've done something wrong, but you've got nobody here to go and say that. And so then what do they do? After they take him to Caiaphas... They basically gather up the Sanhedrin. This is all of the religious leaders. They gather all the priests. They gather all the scribes. And they're like, we're going to put you on trial here, Jesus. And so what did we do? We find in Matthew there, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony about Jesus so that they may put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. So all these people came to say, yes, Jesus did this and Jesus did that. And all these people were just lying and everybody knew it. Okay? And collectively, if we were to put a time frame together of this arrest between the four Gospels, uh, again, he, the, the guards come at night. They arrest him, take him to Ananias, they question him, they take him to Caiaphas, they put the council of priests together, they declare him guilty... 
that he deserves death. And then by early morning, they're waiting at the door of Pilate, who is the Roman governor who's in charge of all of Jerusalem right now in the Middle East. And it's essentially like they're waiting for him to turn the light switch on to be like, oh, he's awake. Now we can get him to put Jesus to the cross. Okay. And, and just to give you a little bit of time frame, when Jesus is arrested, you know, we're talking sometime at night. Uh, and so we're, we're probably thinking it's closer to nine o'clock. By the time they take him to Pilate, you're talking about 6 a.m. So they have it, they've arrested Jesus, put him on trial, and not even in a matter of 12 hours have they declared this man guilty for death. So again, this trial is a sham. It is a violation of the rules of the prisoner, and it is a violation of how the trial was supposed to be conducted. Okay? So we need to keep that in mind because that's going to be an important part here when we get to what Jesus is doing. Okay? All right, so, so keep all of that in your mind. Now we're going to take a look at Peter and what, what is Peter doing. And we all know Peter is the brash, bold disciple who often has his foot in his mouth, right? Uh, and so as they come to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? Peter says, I'm going to defend my Lord and Savior. And he pulls out his sword and he slices off the ear of one of those involved. And I'm sure Peter's probably got the adrenaline going. And Jesus is like, Peter, what are you doing? Put the sword away. Isn't, isn't this the cup that I'm supposed to drink? Peter, what's, what's wrong with you? Put it away, Peter. Put it away. And, and, and then we have the famous passage here. So let me read uh, 15, and then I'm going to skip over to 25 after I finish that. So Peter's just cut off the ear. They've arrested Jesus. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this was, disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple who had known the high priest came back spoke to the girl on duty, and there brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked. He replied, I am not. And it was cold, and the servants' officials stood around a fire, and they made, made to keep warm. And Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Down to verse 25. And as Simon Peter stood warming himself, he, asked, he was asked, You're not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it, saying, I'm not, I'm not. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now, in Matthew 26, Peter's third denial reads this. He began to call down curses and swear I do not know the man. So Peter is pretty obstinate by the third time that I don't know this Jesus you're talking about. I, I don't know who this guy is. And when the rooster crows, it harkens back to something that we've already spoken about earlier in John 13. As they're sitting around um, the, uh, sitting around the, the Passover table, Simon Peter, and Jesus is telling them that, again, he's, he's going to go away. And 
Peter's trying to process this, and he, he asked me, he says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows three times, you will disown me. So all four accounts capture this moment. All four accounts capture the denial of, of Peter as well as him cutting off the ear. And so the fact that all four of them capture it should tell us that this is a significant portion of Scripture, right? God wants us to understand what's happening here with, with Peter. And, and the, uh, the crowing of the rooster again echoes and rings in the ears of Peter of what he's been told before. And I think this is really significant because later in the book of John, as we get to the end, this is going to set up very nicely the character of Christ and the, the forward movement of what's going to happen in Peter's life. Okay, but, but there's something else that I think is important to understand because John's gospel is a little bit different than the other three. And how, the way that he approaches and captures this scenario in the garden. Uh, and, and we have to again remember, what are the Jews expecting? They're expecting a Messiah. They're expecting a warrior savior. And so for so long, they've been waiting for the Messiah that's going to overthrow Roman oppression and Roman rule and Gentile powers. And for so long, they've been waiting for the guy that's going to put Jerusalem back on the map and give them freedom and peace and, and, and allow them to be God's chosen people to prosper and to succeed. And so when Peter back in 13 says, I'm going to die for you, well, that's their mentality. They're waiting for the warrior king to come. And so they're preparing themselves for battle. And they've been hyping themselves up for this moment. And so when they get to the garden, I mean, this is what Peter's been waiting for. This is, this is the fight. It's time. I'm ready. Oh, I've been waiting, Jesus. We got these guys. And so he pulls out the sword, thinking that's exactly what he is supposed to do. And instead of being the hero, what happens? Jesus rebukes Peter. Oh, Peter, 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 Peter. And then to add insult to injury, the great hero that Peter thought he was going to be is now cowering in fear that he may be associated with Jesus. And I think when that rooster crows, what it does, it rings loudly of the failed plan of salvation by man. See, Peter had a loyalty which was great, but it reminds me of what it says in Romans 2, that zeal without knowledge is worthless. And I think Peter had, Peter had all of the zeal and all of the desire to serve Christ. But he still didn't quite understand the mind of Christ. He still didn't understand the plan of what Christ was trying to do. And so he had all of the excitement, but lacked the true understanding of what was to happen. And I think that happens often, right? Sometimes we get so excited in our excitement for Jesus 
we sometimes lose sight of what he's calling us to actually do. And I think when Christ is telling Peter, put your sword away, he's not just telling Peter, but he's telling the rest of us. He's telling the world that he says, listen, you think you know how I'm supposed to act. You think, you think you know what I'm supposed to do, that somehow you can do it better than I can. How prideful we can be in our hearts to pretend that we can play God, right? We often want to dictate the ways of God. I mean, how many times do things go wrong in our lives and we're like, if God just did this, everything would be fine. We prayed this morning for the situation in Ukraine. And in, again, in my mind, you know, Jesus, have uh, the Russian leader get saved and he renounces all the violence and, and then everybody gets saved. Right? I don't understand why God just doesn't understand it. Right? That, that's, that's what we do. That's what we do because somehow we think we know better than God. But I'll be, I'll, I'll be honest with you. If you turn the reins over to me, and I'm sure if we turn the reins over to you, we would destroy this world in a matter of hours, I'm pretty sure, if we had to play God. So Christ is reminding Peter here, guys, there's only one God, Peter, there's only one God, Peter and that's me. Okay, I have this covered. I know what's about to happen. And what he's telling Peter, he says, listen, there is only going to be one way that man is going to be saved. And that's what I'm going to commit myself as to this plan of salvation. So put your sword away, because that is not the way that I'm going to save mankind. And so now we're going to take a look at Christ and the way that Christ is seeing this situation here. So in verse 2, it says a detachment of soldiers come. That word detachment is actually cohort, which means a tenth of the Roman legion. Okay, And, and a Roman legion, again, was roughly around 6,000 soldiers. Now, scholars debate, was this 600 soldiers that showed up? That seems like an awful a lot amount of soldiers. Some scholars use it, uh, look at it and, and say it's a different word, but even that word itself refers to about 200 Roman soldiers. I'm not sure exactly how many soldiers were there, but we are also told in the scriptures by the other gospel that it said a crowd, and Matthew uses the word a large crowd. So what I have to assume is that there were several hundred Roman soldiers that showed up to arrest Jesus, okay? along with some of the Jewish temple guard that were there. So we have this massive army that's showing up to arrest Jesus, and instead of Jesus running away, which they probably were anticipating, what does he do? He confronts those coming to arrest them. He says, who is it you want? I'm right here. Who is it? Jesus is standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with these men. He, he, he hasn't said, quick, disciples, gather your things. Let's get out of here. He turns and he says, who are you looking for? And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. And I love this. I love this. And he says, I am he. I am. Again, that aspect of divinity. 
that goes all the way back again when, when Moses said, who do I say sent me? And, they, and God tells them, tell them, I am sent you. He's proclaiming that he is God. And when he says it, they draw back and fall to the ground. Now, again, some scholars look at this and say, well, I think what happened was their, their conscience was pierced when Jesus said this and they recognized their state of sinfulness. Well, well, again, when you read the context and you read the Greek and it says they fell back, it implies that they actually fell hard on the ground. And what it also tells me is we have to remember these people were coming to arrest Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. I don't think they were concerned about their sins in that moment. But we have to understand that when Christ speaks, power goes forth. And if we forgot about the power that exists, let's just go back to Genesis chapter 1, right? In the very beginning, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be the land, the seas, and the sky. God said, let there be plants, trees, and animals. God said, let there be man made in our image. And when God spoke, it came to be. That is the power of the voice of God. And then earlier... They had sent some men to arrest Jesus and the temple guards are sent off and they come back empty handed and the guys are like, why didn't you arrest him? And that was their response. No one ever spoke the way this man does. You, you, didn't, you didn't hear him. I wasn't getting near Jesus. I've never heard anybody talk like that. That's right, because Christ is not a man because he's a God. He is the God and speaks with all power and authority. And then we have Philippians 2. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. When God proclaims his name, you will get on that knee one way or another. You will either get on it in worship or you will get on it recognizing that he is the king of this universe. All with a simple phrase. That is the power and the authority that Christ has. And then Jesus says again, they get up. And he says it again, who do you want? They're like, well, we want Jesus of Nazareth. And then what does he do? He says, if it's me you want, let these men go. Here he is being arrested, and he's giving commanding authority to these guys and telling them, you're going to do what I want you to do. And you're going to let these guys go. Okay. And then again, when Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest's uh, servant, Jesus transitions this statement yet again. And, and we talked about this way back in the fear series. 
He says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? And then he says to Peter and Matthew, he says, don't you remember? He says, I've got 12,000 legions of angels that I can call at any moment right now. I've got 72,000 angels at my beckoning call, Peter. If I want them to come and do something, I don't need your sword. But Jesus withholds the vengeance of the sword. He, he withholds it from Peter and says, put it away, put it away, put it away. You know, I, I said that again, John's gospel is a little bit different, right? You know, the other gospels tend to focus on the agony of what Jesus is going through. Jesus is, is praying there in the garden and he keeps saying, God, if this, could be, this cup could be taken away, remove this cup from me. But if it's your will, then I will go through it. And he prays it again and he prays it again and to the point where as he's praying, he's literally sweating blood because he knows about what is about to happen and the anguish and pain that he is going to experience. That's what the other gospels say. But we don't get this in John's gospel because John's trying to communicate something else. John has a different angle. What John wants us to realize is that Jesus is in complete and total control of the situation. If we go back to verse 4, what does it say? Jesus knowing all that was going to happen. Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. Jesus knew he was going to be arrested. Jesus knew he was going to be, be hit. Jesus knew that he was going to be put on this sham of a trial, and he knew that Peter was going to try to step in and do what he thought was best. And Jesus knows that he's going to be persecuted a bit more and he's going to be made to wear a crown of thorns and he's going to be made to go to the cross and shed his blood. He knows all of that. And Jesus has all power and authority at any moment in this process to stop it. But he doesn't. John 10 tells us this. It says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. Nobody, nobody takes the life of Christ unless he allows that. Not some temple guards, not a hundred Roman soldiers, not 200, not 600 Roman soldiers. Nobody takes the life of Christ unless he allows that to happen. And that's what he chose to do. And he gives himself over to be bound and arrested. He, he, he gives himself over to face his accusers for proclaiming to be God. He gives himself over to now face this trial, to face this, this, this sham of a trial, and to face the punishment of the cross for something that he never did, that he didn't deserve, that quite frankly is where we should have been, but he takes it for us instead. You, you know, I, I think if, if I was in the garden... I think I would have been more with Peter. 
I, I think I would have been sitting there and being like, Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, you're God. You got you can do it. strike these men down. Do it, Jesus. Call your angels them. Kill them. Bring fire from heaven upon them. Do it. Prove to your prove to your prove it to them. And Jesus says, Peter, shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Peter, I, I'm not going to save the sins of man through the sword. I'm going to save this world through a sacrificial act of unconditional love, Peter. That, that's what I'm going to do. Because, see, the way of Christ was never about shedding blood of other men, but it was about shedding his own. The way of salvation was never won through the battlefield. See, the, the way of salvation is that Christ has died for us so that we may die to him. That was always the plan of salvation. And that's what Christ committed himself. See, this is the awesome God that we serve, is it not? A God that said, I love you so much that I'm going to pour out my blood for you, that I'm going to endure your guilt and forgo my innocence because I love you. Because my love is more powerful than any bullet in a gun or any arrow in a bow. Again, at any point, Christ could have chosen to do anything different. God could have made another plan of salvation if that's what he desired. But this is the perfect will of God. And there's no greater act that shows us how much he loved us by committing himself to this plan of salvation. So let's praise him. Let us praise him that he endured the cross because he loved us. Let's pray. Lord, you are a, a God of so many qualities, characteristics. On one hand, Lord, you are the infinite, powerful God of the universe. You spoke and the world comes into a creation. Lord, at any point, our lives can be snuffed out from us. At any point, Lord, you, you can choose to act in any way that you desired. But Lord, you had us realize that there is no greater act of proving your glory than showing your love through the cross. We will never again realize the, the ultimate sacrifice. We will never be able to comprehend fully the experience of what this cross is going to mean. But we do know what it results for in our lives. A transformation of, of a broken, sinful heart to be received into your heavenly kingdom. And so, Lord, let us be reminded daily that it is through the cross, it is through the blood, it is through your love, through your death and resurrection 
that I have been made alive all to your glorious plan of salvation. Amen.